0: Good morning, church. How are you doing this morning? The sound of that last worship song sounds like you're doing pretty okay. Uh, I'm Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor uh, here at Woodland Hills and the main teaching pastor. I want to thank Dwayne for delivering a great word last week. He did a great job. I and uh, my wife and some friends, we were supposed to, in the last two weeks, uh, we had carved out time to go down to Haiti. Uh, This was going to be a missions trip with Providence Ministries. But because of the earthquake, they only want people who uh, have got a uh, background in medicine. And uh, 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 Jen Helverson, who's associated with our group, was already down there. So we, since we already carved up this time, already had the plane tickets, we just transferred them over and went to Puerto Rico and had a little vacation down there, kind of consolation prize. Um, so uh, it was a good, relaxing time. I'll say a little bit more about that, that uh, experience towards the end of my message. Um, but... Uh, I want to, this morning, go back to—this is what we do at Woodland Hills Church. We just worship God passionately and, and, and teach the Word. And so we're in the book of Luke. And what I like to do—we don't do this very often, but I want to take another swipe at the passages that Duane covered last week. Um, he, he did a great job of, of warning us about the uh, ever-present tempter who wants to sift us like wheat and uh, bring us into temptation and the need for us to pray and be on guard. But there's another issue involved in the text that he read last week. Uh, that I want to address, a very important issue. I think it's centrally important. And so I want to read from Luke chapter 22, verses 36 through uh, 38. And I'm going to entitle this message, Let It Go. Let It Go. Because in the end, it's all about just letting go of everything in our life that's inconsistent with the character of God. Just let it go. So reading from the book of Luke, it says this. And here Jesus is just getting ready to go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, But now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. It's going to be a long night, in other words. He's saying, prepare for this. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. What's up with that? It is written, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, Jesus replied. Interesting passage. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I pray for everybody in this congregation and everybody listening through podcasts or pod parishioners and by any other means that you'd open our ears and open our eyes and open our hearts to receive your word in all of its fullness. Lord, my my sense here is that this word is to be a cleansing word. The Bible tells us to be cleansed by the washing of the word. And Father, just anoint this message to cleanse us, to purge us of everything in our life, in our mind, our thought, that is inconsistent with your kingdom. And free your people to manifest the beauty of your kingdom and all of its radicalness. We also, God, want to pray for the people of Chile uh, who have... And suffering under this uh, destruction of this earthquake, we pray, Lord, that you'd be raising up people who would generously uh, invest in them and, and to bring relief there. And God, just be somehow working in that situation uh, to minimize the pain and even turn to your advantage, as well as, Lord, for those uh, countries and cities that are in the line of tsunamis that are, are being produced by this earthquake, God, give leaders in those areas wisdom on how best to respond to this situation. And our heart just goes out to all these folks. But now, Lord, we commit this time to you and ask, Lord, that you would just anoint it powerfully by by your Spirit in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Okay, the issue in a nutshell is simply this. This passage that we read this morning is one of the most frequently quoted verses, passages, Uh, When people, when Christians want to argue for the legitimacy, necessity, and justice of Christians engaging in violence. I've had a number of discussions or debates the last six years or so since the publication of Myth of a Christian Nation, uh, on people on this issue, and uh, invariably folks will appeal to this, to say things like this. And there's actually a long tradition of this going back to St. Augustine where they'll look at this passage and they'll say, well, look, at yes, Jesus is against violence, and we must be against violence, but even Jesus understands that in the fallen world, sometimes you've got to resort to violence. You have to use the sword. He understands that it's justified in certain circumstances. And on that basis, Christians have justified uh, being involved in all sorts of violence. If you know uh, anything about my approach to Scripture or what Woodland Hills Church has come to stand for, have been around here for any length of time, you'll understand, you won't be surprised, when I express my disagreement with that use of this passage. And I think it's important to show why. Uh, Five considerations here, very briefly. it's an important issue. If Jesus actually intended his disciples to ever use the sword that he told them to go get, if he intended that, you have to ask the question, well, then what about all the other teachings in the the, New Testament and in the teachings of Jesus that forbid violence? What about... Verses like do not resist an evil person or to turn the other cheek don't ever strike back or to love your enemies or to bless those who persecute you or to do good to those who hate you or to pray for those who mistreat you or feed your enemies when they're hungry or Paul when he says never exact vengeance never retaliate and on and on and on and on you got to ask the question. If Jesus was telling his disciples to uh, be ready to engage in violence in the Garden of Gethsemane, how, does that, how is that compatible with everything else he says about loving enemies and never retaliating and things of that sort? I submit to you that something else is going on here. Secondly, if Jesus intended his disciples to actually use the swords he told them to get, why are two swords enough? If he's actually thinking that his disciples are going to be involved in conflict, two swords would never be enough. If they're going to take on the Jewish uh, guard, let alone the Roman army, they're going to need a lot more than two swords. Why does he say, oh, that's adequate? Something else is going on. Third, if Jesus actually intended his disciples to ever use the sword, why did he rebuke Peter when Peter did so? Think about that. When they came to arrest Jesus, Peter justifiably, of course, took out a sword, started wielding it all around, and lopped off a guy's ear. Jesus rebukes him, says, put that sword away. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. In other words, that sword stuff just goes round and round and round and round. And then Jesus shows what kingdom warfare looks like when he heals the guard's ear. So if Jesus intended them to use the sword, why didn't he congratulate Peter when he used it instead of rebuking him? Fourth, If Jesus actually intended his disciples to use the sword he told them to get, how could Jesus with integrity say to Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting in my defense? Look at this. Jesus here proves to Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world by showing, by pointing him to the fact that his disciples are not fighting. But now if Jesus was just a little while earlier telling them to be ready to fight, he'd be totally hypocritical here. The nonviolence of the kingdom is the proof that it's not a kingdom of this world because all the kingdoms of this world engage in violence. And finally, you ask the question, well, then why did Jesus tell them to go sell their cloak and buy a sword? Well, the verse tells us very explicitly. It wasn't to use it. It was for this reason. Jesus says uh, to fulfill the passage that says he, numbered, he, he, must be, he was numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53. Jesus says go and, and get some swords so that I can fulfill that passage in Isaiah 53, which says he was numbered with the transgressors. It's a messianic prophecy. And in this context, the transgressor is a political insurrectionist, someone who was aggressively going against the government. Jesus also needed that to happen to get crucified, because the Jews couldn't turn him over to the Romans unless he was accused or could be charged with a political crime. Calling yourself the Messiah or making these divine claims which made the Jews all all angry, that wouldn't have got him in any trouble with the Romans. They didn't care about that. But if they could say, hey, look, he was carrying a sword, well, now, now it becomes a political matter. And so it was a way uh, of of Jesus stepping into uh, his destiny of of getting crucified. All of this shows, I believe, that uh, Jesus had no intention of his disciples using the sword that he told him to get. And it's completely inappropriate, I submit to you, to try to wring a justified violence out of this passage here, and yet so often it has gone to for just that reason. Now this is, I believe, folks, so important. Because at the center, at the center of the kingdom, this isn't a peripheral issue. I, I don't believe that. I think this is as central as it gets. At the center of the kingdom is the cross, which means that the center of the kingdom is the call to live this radical, foolish-looking, beautiful lifestyle where we love our enemies and we serve our enemies and we do good to our enemies rather than trying to retaliate against our enemies. This is the proof that Jesus appeals to when he's before, Pil- before Pilate. And I submit to you, it is still the proof that the kingdom we belong to is not of this world. The best litmus test I know of as to how thoroughly kingdomized we are is how free from violence are we. How free from violence are we? Now, this is so central to the kingdom. It's it's, it's as clear as any teaching in the New Testament could be. It's repeated. It's, it's, It's unequivocal. It's never qualified. It's a very, very clear teaching. But it completely contradicts the kingdom of this world. It completely contradicts our conditioning to the normality of violence, the necessity of violence. And because of that, it strikes us as a bizarre teaching, maybe even an immoral teaching. And so we try to find clever ways to get around it, even though it's obvious. And one of the clever ways we we use to get around it is by taking verses like this and trying to actually use it to justify our violence. So important. This is so central. It's all the more so, I believe, for those of us who are listening to this message in an American context. Because American Christianity has a long tradition of not only ignoring this central teaching, but of ridiculing it. We have a long tradition in the church. the church. One of the church's jobs is to support our righteous violence and to celebrate our righteous victories. And so we've been co-opted into the violence of the, of the empire for so long we don't even notice how much it contradicts the call of the kingdom. This, is, this explains bizarre things like this. Two years ago, three years ago, a famous Christian evangelist on a Christian network at a Christian station calls out for the assassination of a foreign president. Uh, and not only are Christians, were Christians not appalled by this, but they applauded this. They applauded this. What's wrong with this picture? In the name of the one who taught us to follow his example and sacrifice yourself for your enemies rather than sacrificing them for yourself, we're calling on people to get assassinated. Central to the call of the kingdom is the call to put off all violence. But it's not just violence in our actions, though it certainly includes that. It's also a call to put off all violence in our heart and in our attitudes, and in our minds, and in our spirit. It's a a call to purge yourself of violence on the inside, because only when you do that can you be free of violence on the outside. Now, it's it's the end of February, and and, uh, February is is African American History Month, and so it's appropriate to use this example. Uh, I don't think anybody on the planet in history has understood this better than Martin Luther King. The necessity to, if you're going to do the call, cause of God, to be purged of violence on the inside. Today we, we rightly celebrate what he stood for. Equal rights, civil rights. But what is largely forgotten, because it's inconvenient to remember it in our cultural context, is that for Martin Luther King, just as important as what he stood for was how he stood for it. And he understood, on the basis of the, the gospel and the example of Jesus Christ, that if you want to go forward with justice God's way, you've got to do it God's way, and God's way looks like Calvary, not like Caesar with his swords and his tanks and his military. On the basis of Jesus' life and teaching, he believed that God would only be on the side of justice if we go about it God's way. So we must refuse all violence and purge ourselves of violence in our heart. And before people would go on marches, he would preach to them this message. I don't want you doing this unless you can before God say that you're doing this not just for the sake of justice and not for the sake of your welfare, but also for the sake of your oppressor, out of love for your oppressor. If you have any hatred in your heart, don't march, because you'll be spiritually clogging the system. Here's a quote that he had in this, his marvelous book, Stride Toward Freedom. He says nonviolent resistance, which is what he called his program. It's not being passive in in the face of violence at all. It's being aggressive in the face of violence, but you're not not aggressive in a violent way. He called it nonviolent resistance. Nonviolent resistance avoids not only external physical violence, but also avoids violence of spirit. The nonviolent resistor not only refuses to shoot his opponent, but he also refuses to hate him. In the struggle for human dignity... The oppressed people of the world must not succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter or indulging in hate campaigns. This is what separated him from Malcolm X. If you are involved in hating your enemy, you're still defined by your enemy, you're still oppressed by your enemy. The only way to be free is to refuse to hate your enemy. And then King continues, he says, Along the way of life, someone must have sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate a cyclical chain that goes round and round and round and largely describes world history this can only be done by projecting the ethic of love which he defined as calvary calvary like love the ethic of life to the very center of our lives folks this is i believe what first and foremost made king a distinct and great human being he saw that standing up for justice Without a commitment to nonviolence in body, soul, and spirit, eventually leads to more violence and eventually leads to more injustice. You can never achieve peace, he taught, unless you model peace on the way towards working towards peace. So the only way to break this cycle of violence and cycle of hatred that largely describes human history is to simply opt out of it. Refuse to participate in. It. You quit. You quit. Doesn't mean you're passive at all. You're aggressive. But you're aggressive in a way that is consistent with ascribing to your enemy, quote-unquote, unsurpassable worth in a way that refuses all violence. You get to the point where you're so disgusted with that cycle of violence, you just quit. I, I, I got to this point sometime in the mid to late 90s. I think by the grace of God, God brought me to a point. It was right around the time of the Rwanda genocide, which I just found nightmarishly sickening. And something in me snapped. And I, God brought me to the point where I was so sick of this endless violence that is human history. The endless hatred, the killing, the vengeance, the retaliation. The idiotic calls for retribution from God on on your opponent. The tribalism and the nationalism and the militarism. I got so sick of it, revolted by it, disgusted by it. I just said in my spirit, I quit. I don't don't ever want to be a part of anything that has to do with this. I'd rather die than participate in that. If violence is what it takes on a practical matter to make the world go round, then that's not the kind of world I want to live in. As I understand the gospel, the promise of God is that when you don't live in that kind of world, refuse to participate in that kind of world, that's what moves the world closer and closer to the kind of world you would want to live in, which Jesus calls the kingdom of God. With King, I got to the point where I had to say, by the grace of God, I refuse to hate anyone for any reason. I refuse not to love anyone for any reason. I refuse to participate in any violence of heart, mind, body, soul towards anyone for any reason. And I believe that God has to bring us to the point, to this sort of point, if we're going to take seriously the cross way of living. God's got to bring us to the point where we're so sick of it, we see the futility of it, the mundane, macabre, monotony of it all, how it doesn't, in the end, accomplish anything. We get, we, you get to the point where you're so sick of it, you just say, I quit. You let it go. You let it go. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I found, as, as many people have found, when, I, when you make the commitment to refuse all violence, inside and outside, when you make that commitment, you begin to see the world differently. Begin to experience the world differently. When you stop looking at your enemy, in terms of what is for your advantage or against your advantage, when you stop, you get out that self-protective mindset, when you can stop looking at your enemy as an enemy, you start seeing them as a human being. And, and you start seeing what God sees, that they were worth dying for. You see, you see the world in a different light. In fact, I found a little later on, I, I, I got to the point where I, I, I felt led to commit to never participating in violence towards any living thing at least not out of convenience. I don't give life to anything. I don't feel I have the right to take life. And so I made this commitment to try to respect all life, uh, at least not to take it out of convenience. And there's times where you have to, but, but not to. And I found that that changed the way I look at the world, the way I look at nature. Uh, you know, you see, you see animals differently when you stop looking at them simply in terms of how they satisfy your taste buds or, or, or keep you warm. They have an intrinsic worth and they, they glorify God in their own way. And some of you will think I'm absolutely off my rocker on this, but I found the same things with bugs. Except mosquitoes, they're of the devil, but other bugs, are, they're, they're, they have their own way. You know, we're just Minnesota. Well, you know, there is, there is the fall and the corruption, and you've got to take that into consideration. But no, honestly, I, I, I have made a commitment that I will not uh, I, I kill a bug just because it's convenient to do it. Uh, if, I, if there's a way of saving I'll save it. And in my house, we've got these little suction guns, these, these toy suction guns. I've got one upstairs, one downstairs, so when I see a bug, I can suction it in. And if there's a way to save it, I will save it. And I encourage you, see, that changes. It, it, it will change the way you look at bugs. Maybe, I don't know. It, I, I challenge you to try this sometime. Next time you see a little spider crawling around rather than stepping on it, try to save it. Uh, and, and... Uh, If it's warm enough, you let it outside or put it in a jar or whatever. And what if that doesn't give you a little bit of joy on the inside? Think about this. I know you guys think I'm really weird. I see you looking at me. Hey, look it. You try making one of those things. I rest my case. You see, there's... All right. But the point is this to see what God sees. It's the violence in our heart and minds and spirit that pollutes our perception of things. We see the world as an ugly place because there's ugliness in our hearts. And when we can purge that, you start seeing beauty all around you. And to live the way God wants us to live and to see what God sees, we must let go, let go of everything in our body, soul, and spirit that's inconsistent. With the character of God as revealed in Jesus Christ, especially on the cross. That's why the New Testament over and over and over again says in a lot of different ways, purge all violence from your being. Purge all malice. Purge all bitterness and hatred and cursing and slander and animosity and and vengeance. Purge it from your life. Only by doing that repeatedly and consistently as a lifestyle can you stay free from the pollution of the world, the evil of the world. Otherwise, it contaminates you and interferes with the flow of kingdom life in you and through you. Let's look at at one of these passages. One of these passages, Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Listen to this. In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you're being sealed for the day of redemption, which means get rid of all bitterness, all rage, all anger, all brawling, all slander, along with every form of malice. Covers pretty much everything. Rather, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. What a powerful passage. Let me break it down just a little bit. First Paul says, speak the truth. Speak the truth. The word truth in Greek means uncovered. He's simply saying, say what is real. Now say it in love. He tells us a few verses earlier, speak the truth in love. Don't be rude or crude or anything like that, but, but, but speak the truth. Whatever's real, present that. Because to the degree that we don't do that, we create duplicity. Deal with stuff that's real right then and there. Secondly, he says, be angry, but don't sin. The word anger means hot. We get hot sometimes. But notice, that's not sin. We get angry when anything we value gets devalued. And that's a normal response. Jesus got angry when the temple, which he valued, was being devalued. Now, maybe what you value, or the way you value it, is sinful. But the fact that you get angry when it's devalued, that's not sin. But here's what happens when we sin. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't sleep on your anger. And now he uses a slightly different word for anger. It's the word para-orge. That word orge is still there, heat. But para is a, a prefix that means down under or submerged. When we go to bed with our anger, because we're not speaking truth, we're not dealing with stuff, we swallow, we put on that Minnesota nice smile, even though we're seething on the inside. Oh, no, praise the Lord. Uh, what, what happens is that now that's anger down under, that's heat down under. It submerged, and that begins to pollute you and destroy you. It also, Paul says, gives the devil a foothold. Why? Because you create darkness. To the extent that you're not living in congruity with the outside of the inside. To the degree that you're not speaking the truth and dealing with issues. To the degree that you're swallowing stuff, you create duplicity in your life. Darkness, hiding. He's called the prince of darkness for a reason. He needs darkness to operate. And So whenever we, we are, are hypocrites and don't deal with stuff and swallow anger, well, we, create, we, we, we create an avenue for the en- enemy to get into our life and start sowing seeds of destruction. We also, Paul says, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's always trying to move us towards that day of redemption when we'll be perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But insofar as we swallow anger and don't deal with stuff and have violence, therefore, in our heart and mind, to that degree, we're quenching the Spirit and are being conformed to the image of the enemy rather than the image of God. So Paul is saying here, deal with things as soon as possible. Get rid of it. Let it go. Unforgiveness. Let it go. Bitterness, let it go. Rage, let it go. Malice, let it go. Slander, let it go. And not just physical slander when you insult someone with your mouth, but all that slander we have in our brain. When we're talking about people in our brain, cursing them in our brains, Paul says, let it go. It's all darkness. It's all giving the devil a foothold. It's all destructive. It is cancer. And I've seen it destroy people. It just eats you from the inside out. That's why Paul says, so emphatically, in Romans 12, leave all vengeance to God. All of it. All retaliation, leave it to God. There's a part of us. See, when someone wrongs us, it's like they, they now owe us something, a debt. And we want to exact debt. And there's kind of a justice to that. You owe me. And it's the discrepancy between what we got and what we should have got that creates this anger and wrath. You owe me this much. And, and our wrath just expresses our hanging on to that debt. Our anger, our bitterness. Our bitterness. Paul says, let it go. Give it to God. God, on the judgment day, will give everyone their due. You can trust him to do it. But when we try to play God, and we try to exact justice, it does nothing but destroy us from the inside out. For our sake, forgive. For our sake, let it go. For your sake, let God be judge. You just love like Christ loves. Don't try to judge like God judges. Let it go. Forgiveness is simply letting go of a debt. It doesn't mean you like the person. Doesn't mean that you trust the person. Doesn't mean you want to hang around with the person. Some people are toxic. You shouldn't hang around with them. Doesn't mean you're going to stay there because uh, sometimes you've got to leave. Doesn't mean that what they did wasn't heinous because maybe it really was heinous. Doesn't minimize it at all. It just means you're saying, I'm not God, and so I'm going to let them go. I'm going to let that go. Let it go and live in love as Christ loved us. It's not always easy. It's really not, but it's so necessary. It's so important. And it's got to be done repeatedly. Purge yourself of all violence. It's not easy. I, I was reminded of that fact this, this uh, last week. As I mentioned earlier, we went on vacation uh, with uh, Shelly and I, with uh, 10 friends. And um, got, got to the airport plenty of time. I uh, Had a plane to catch around 6 in the morning. But it was the day after President's Day, and so it was kind of like traveling on a Monday, and it was so crowded. So it took us forever to get through the lines and, and, and get through security. And so we were already kind of pressed for time. But we would have been fine, except that my lovely wife, Shelly, had her computer randomly checked. You know, they a little swipe. And they found some material that was suspicious. We later found out that, that it was uh, some lotion she uses has got some chemical that sometimes sets these buzzers off. And it would be kind of nice if they tell you that on the product. May not make clearance in the, at the airport. <laughs> so what happens is we got, we got put aside. Now, because it's lotion, they find it on, a, on other things that she's carrying. So the buzzer's going off quite a few times. So they run the test a number of times. And it's always uh, got problems. So then they call the manager. The manager comes 10 minutes later, and now I'm getting you know, kind of worried because it's getting close to boarding time. The manager does the exact same test that they did three times and says, oh boy, the buzzers are going off. We've got to call the supervisor. Now I'm thinking, why don't we call the supervisor the first time? I was like, save some time. So another five minutes or so, the supervisor, whoever he was, shows up. I, 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 I swear, this guy is like watching a movie in slow motion. And I was like, come on, we got a plane to catch. And this is kind of serious because the way we do vacations, Shelly and I, uh, you know, we got friends who are really good organizers and planners and stuff, so we let them do it all. We didn't even know where we were going in Puerto Rico. Someplace in Puerto Rico, we don't know what flights to catch. We have the, these, these vans we're supposed to pick up and uh, all these details. We don't, we don't even have the itinerary. And, and now, if we get separated from our friends, this is disastrous. So there's some consternation here. Finally, 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 they let us go. He has got to go through every single thing in her purse before he gives clearance. And so we run down the terminal. We show up at uh, the gate, and now our trip starts to become the, the trip from Hades. Because <laughs> I go to the lady, the lady there, and said, uh, "Ma'am, ma'am, we're traveling with friends. We're on that plane, and and uh, you know, can, can you please let us on that plane?" I gave her the ticket. And the first thing she says is, plane left a long time ago. She had broken English. Plane left a long time ago. I go, ma'am, it's right behind you. <laughs> it doesn't leave for another minute. She goes, door closed. I go, oh, okay, but, but I, I've been on planes before when they open up the door when it's only been shut for a little bit and the people were detained by security. Please let us on this plane. We, we, we really need to get on there, otherwise we're lost, blah, 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 blah. And then this shocked me. She goes, I don't know what your problem is. Your friends were here on plenty of time. I went, What? And so she repeats herself. I don't know what your problem is. Your friend's had plenty of time. Got on a plane, fine. I don't know what your problem is. I said, lady, I just explained to you that we were detained by security and and held up and and we we, we traveled here with them. And then she did this bizarre thing. She kind of waved her hand and she goes, "Uh, friends here, plenty of time. They're on the plane. You're too late. So not only are you blaming us, you're mocking us. My heart's like... (laughs) And it became clear. that, And never once did she make eye contact. The whole time she's looking down. She's looking down. It's, you know, talking about customer service. The plane finally leaves without us. She gives us tickets uh, to catch the next plane down to Atlanta, but we wouldn't get there in time to make our connecting flight. So we're, you know, kind of in bad shape here. The trip from Hades. But it got worse because on that trip down to Atlanta, guess who is the gate attendant? Her. She shows up there. Unbelievable. I look at my my ticket, and I realize that she had seated us, uh, Shelly and I, uh, far apart. So I went up there trying to be as nice as possible, trying to, you know. The only thing I said before when we left was, you could have showed a little compassion. I mean, I was really angry, but I I, I didn't want to lose it too much. So I go up to her. I said, ma'am, is there any way that we can have seats together on this plane? And again, not making eye contact, she immediately goes, nope, plane full. I said, okay, well, is there any way that I could get an aisle seat? Because I got a bum knee, and if I'm crunched for too long, it starts to ache. Nope, painful. So I go down, and I sit. I'm sitting kind of close to her, staring at her, because I, I, I know I have to, at this point, start to pray. I got—I don't want to. I don't want to, but I got to start blessing her. But it, she hardly made it easier for me, because not more than three minutes later, a guy comes up to the counter and says, yeah, I'm on this flight to Atlanta. I'm wondering, do you have any, any uh, exit row or aisle seats? She, she she checks this time. She didn't check with me. She checks. Goes. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, fine. And so she takes his ticket and gives him a new ticket. <laughs> I wanted to go up there and confront this, but what would be the point? Now we had a very important decision to make. Shelly and I, we could sit there and be justified, steaming and stewing and spitting venom, and how unfair this was and this was, and how miserable that lady is, and we could have done that, or we could be kingdom people and obey the teachings of the New Testament, which says to love your enemies, bless those who persecute you, pray for those who despitefully use you. So we start blessing her. Just start. You gotta let it go. Let it go. It's, I don't feel sinful for being angry. Anyone? Jesus would have been hot over this lady. I mean, this. this this, this lady was incredible. That wasn't sin. But see, it's the decision of what you do with that. That's all important. And our job is to bless, to refuse to hate for any reason and just start to pray and start to bless. And, and, and here's the thing is that that, I can't go into details here, but I, can't, I have trouble conveying to you how much worse the trip got after this. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. It was incredible. The plane we got on, the, the second plane, the engine didn't work. We were delayed another 90 minutes. Then we missed our another connecting flight, got put on standby, but there's 30 people ahead of us, so we had to transfer and, and buy all new tickets from a different airline to get down there. That plane gets us getting delayed twice. We don't even leave till four in the morning. We've been traveling for 24 hours. I end up losing my ticket. I get a new ticket. I go outside to try to find the phone, which I lost. I, but then I somehow damaged the ticket, so they wouldn't let me back into the terminal. I mean, it was it was it was endless. It was a nightmare. And if we had held on to that anger, all of those events would have been one more reason to reconfirm how angry we are at her. It was her fault. I mean, she wouldn't let us on. We would have been okay. And we, we, that could ruin the whole trip. I mean, the bitterness and anger. But see, when we let it go, we let it go and just blessed her and whatever, very soon we started to laugh at this. We started to laugh at it. And it gets to the point where it turns into an absolute comedy because you're like, well, what else can go wrong? Oh, that could go wrong. What about Oh, wait. Certainly nothing else. Oh, wrong again. Here's something else. You got locked out of your own terminal. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying it was all easy. There's times that we had to like, okay, you know, go back to it. Uh, but see, when you get rid of the pollution, you can enjoy life even in extreme circumstances. And when you get rid of the pollution, let it go, let it go. All the violence, all the animosity, all malice, let it go. Just get life from God and bless When you do that, it also gives you perspective and wisdom. Very soon after we started doing that, let go of the anger, it all struck us us as profoundly silly that we would be angry and upset for very long over having vacation plans to Puerto Rico disturbed when we were supposed to be going to Haiti in the first place. And there's not an indigenous person in Haiti who wouldn't give anything to have our problem. In fact, nine tenths of the world would love to have our problem. <laughs> Boo hoo! I mean, oh, you're upset. You're a playing guy. You see, it is, folks. Our it's our inner violence that makes us stupid and childish, and it, it really does. People pouting for years over something that happened. When if you look at the broader scheme of things, it rather, is, it's kind of small. It's it's our it's our inner violence that that just colors the way we look at the world and. Keeps us childish. The call of the kingdom is to refuse to hate, refuse to have malice, refuse to harbor slander and bitterness in our hearts, and refuse to ever engage in violence in our lives. So I want to end with, 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 with this challenge. And here I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to be real. And if it helps you to close your eyes as we go through this short meditation, uh, then do that. But here, here's the question Do you have violence? Any element of violence in your inner being. And it may not be obvious to you, because perhaps you've had it there for so long, it's sort of the, become the wallpaper of your inner world. You don't even notice it anymore. Holy Spirit, bring to our attention any element of malice, bitterness, jealousy, vengeance, a desire to retaliate, to get even cursing slander gossip in our brain bring it to our attention lord and bring bring to our awareness right here and right now holy spirit in this auditorium for all who are listening through podcasting right this moment whatever they're doing bring to our imagination our, our, our inner vision the person or persons that that is directed towards and I encourage all of us to just hold that person. It could be mom, it could be a dad, it could be a grandparent, it could be a kid, it could be a, a spouse, could be an ex-spouse, could be the neighbor, could be a terrorist—I don't know. But now, as you hold them in mind, will you here now receive fullness of life from Jesus Christ, who meets all your innermost needs? You don't have to exact a debt from anybody. You have everything you could ever need already. Receive Christ as your source of life and peace and comfort and meaning. And now out of that fullness and by the power of the Spirit, will you let the toxicity go? Let the anger go. Let unforgiveness go. Can you release the person of all debts? Maybe you need to, in your heart, pray this prayer. Father, I trust you to administrate justice. I leave it all to you. And then, in the power of the Holy Spirit, pray a blessing on that person. Say, Father, I agree with you that they were worth Jesus dying for. And it could be that you, as as I was in that airport, I did it out of strict obedience. I didn't feel it at all. But out of obedience, refuse to hate them, refuse to be bitter towards them, let them go. Doesn't mean that you'll ever trust them, hang around with them, anything of the sort. Doesn't mean that what they did was not heinous. Maybe it was. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Holy Spirit, empower us to get our life from Christ and to let every thing else go. So we could be free to laugh and free to dance and free to live. And that no wound would be permanently crippling in our life. Uh, we'll bring you healing power right here and right now. I like to end it like this. I want to stay in a state of meditation and prayer. And if God's doing a work in your life about something you've been holding on to, I maybe somebody here all of a sudden discovered that for the last 20 years you've been hanging on to something you didn't even know it D- don't leave in that condition I'm going to ask the prayer team to come up and if you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for as you work through this come up and pray with these folks or if you just want to come and kneel don't, don't, don't cut short what God's doing in your life right now uh, or if you just want to stay seated in your chair and let God work uh, the music will continue to play and just let God do this work to purge clean let go of all the ugliness, anger, and bitterness. And, then, and when, when you feel like you want to leave, leave. But please remain quiet and take the conversations out into the gathering area. Spend a lot of time talking out there, but in this auditorium, out of respect for those who want to linger for a while, uh, please remain silent until you're out into the gathering area. Lord, we leave here praying that you'll keep on cleansing us, free us to dance in the light of your peaceful kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.